Do we have to talk about Brexit? Can we not just talk about something fun for once in politics? Well, Poland. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another Sunday Roast. We have two wonderful guests with us once again. Um, Let's start off with John. John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a former member of the European Parliament in the Conservative Party a long time ago. I was very much involved with the creation of the euro. I left the Conservative Party, and since then I've been doing investment business, really. I'm now retired. Fantastic. Great to have you on. Brendan, welcome back. Uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself? Right um, I'm, also a former, former, I'm also a former Conservative member of the European Parliament. Um, but these days I'm, I'm the director of the Federal Trust, which is a, a pro-EU think tank based in, in London. Um, when I say pro-EU, I don't just mean vaguely pro-European. I mean interested in and supportive of the institutions of the European Union. Fantastic. And Alex, um, would you tell would you tell us something about yourself for anyone who's new to the show? Hi, my name is Alex. I'm a YouTuber, a historian, and now, or more recently, a journalist. And my wonderful co-host, Max, can you please introduce yourself? Hello, hello, everyone. My name is Max. I run the Robespierre channel where I talk about Brexit and politics. Alex, what's our first topic for today? We've got good news. We've got good Brexit news, finally. Well, sort of Brexit, more like Pexit, because Poland had their elections recently, which, which haven't really been talked about too much in the news. But it actually turns into a really pro-anti-Brexit position, a pro-EU anti-Brexit position, albeit that Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council, didn't get a majority. Neither did the quite far-right Polish party that is currently in power and it looks like Donald Tusk has possibly got the ability to form a coalition government. Brendan, what are your what are your thoughts on this? What what do you know? What you you seem pretty keen to talk about this topic. Well, I think it's very good news indeed. It's good news for Europe. It's good news for Poland. It's good news for for even the discussion of Brexit and European Union in this country, because one of the narratives that was beginning to gain some traction in this country was that the European Union is condemned to be um, a a bastion of of right-wing populists. Uh, Even bizarre claims being made that the United Kingdom was uh, was the home of liberalism in Europe. Uh, But there were even some people who uh, were traditionally associated with Rejoin and and Remain um, who were falling for this narrative. I'm absolutely delighted to see that it's being contradicted so spectacularly. And you couldn't really have a, a better beneficiary of that um, of that development than than Tusk, whose contribution to the EU will be a very positive one. And perhaps we could say something about that later on. But um, that's all I'd like to say in summary at the beginning. John, what's your take on what's happened in Poland? Well, I think it is uh, very significant because uh, Poland has been a source of uh, difficulty for the uh, European Union for a while over the ruling. Uh, Law and Justice Party seeking to diminish the independence of the Polish judiciary. And this has led to a standoff. And I think the ending of that standoff is going to be very constructive. And it will also help, I think, uh, shore up uh, European solidarity with regard to Ukraine and clarity of uh, EU policy towards Ukraine, which the previous Polish government was creating a range of difficulties about it, despite having um, also been supportive initially. 
both in the field of grain exports um, from Ukraine affecting the position of Polish farmers uh, and more generally. So I think in, in a number of very specific ways, this is a, a, a tremendous relief for those who favor uh, closer European integration. And that I think sends an important message as Brendan was indicating to those who imagine that the only basis under which Britain could consider getting back to a closer relationship with the European Union was in some outer tier. The, the, the Polish view, the, the new Polish government's view, I think, of European integration will be that ultimately everybody will be moving towards ever closer union. There is, of course, a question of pace, but there is not a, a, a view of a different uh, objective between an inner core and an outer core. And I think that this is a very important argument because the, the, the beginning of realism for British pro-Europeans is to understand that it is only meaningful to talk about rejoining the EU if we become committed to ever closer union, to a, the project of a fully united Europe. And this election result, I think, has crystallised that point once again, and that's very valuable. Those people who believed that Brexit and its reversal or something to do with Brexit would be important in the Polish election. There was a lot of nonsense in the British press about how um, uh, Brexit um, needed to be defended in Poland, that um, somehow we had our candidate in, in the PIS and Tusk was a, an enemy of Britain. That, that's such nonsense um, from beginning to end that I, I'm glad it, 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 it didn't come about in a way that might have encouraged that sort of nonsensical analysis in this country. I, I don't know if you, uh, if either of you had seen the Express uh, article yeah. about this, where it was ov obviously bad news for Europe. But um, what, what is your take on what's going to happen to Hungary? Because now they're a bit more isolated than they were before. They are indeed. Um, and I think that Orban going off to Beijing for this uh, love-in um, is a particularly um, provocative thing. Um, the I don't believe that Hungary, however, can constitute a major barrier. Orban's position does depend very much on his grip on the Hungarian banking system in particular. And what we are beginning to see is a, is a very fundamental reform of uh, the... Uh, deposit guarantee scheme as part of the banking union proposals. This has been going on for a very long time. But this, when fully completed, will, I think, weaken a very key element in Auburn's power base. And so I'm, I, I, I think Hungary is a problem. Auburn has been a problem for, for a while. But I think his potential for doing uh, further damage to the European project is diminishing. Slowly, I'd say in this instance, quite rapidly, um, or it's a major setback for him, because to be the, the isolated, singular uh, opponent of, um, of European values, of European progress, um, uh, instead of having uh, a major country, a major assertive country like Poland on your side, um, really changes the power complex, the power balance within the European Union enormously. One of the main problems, it seems to me, over the past six or seven years has been precisely that, that Poland has gone absent from the construction of, of Europe. 
And as long as we had um, people like Tusk in charge, um, there was a clear majority in favour of a, 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 an institutionally and politically progressive Europe. Auburn and, and the Poles together were able for a certain period of time to act as a break, a very substantial break on that. And I just don't think that, that Orban uh, can do that on his own to anything like the extent that he was able to do it when he was working with the Poles. Or, or take much comfort, indeed, from the uh, from the uh, European perspective, such a disappointing result in, in, in Slovakia. Because the, one of the problems of, of, of Orban's view of, of Europe is that it is very linked to ideas of Hungarian... Uh, revanchism in some respects. Orban, the, the Hungarian culture of, of Orban's political party does not accept fundamentally the borders that have been imposed upon Hungary. It get, keeps on talking about its interests in, in territories that, were, that were, were previously part of Hungary, which includes Slovakia. And so although in one level um, the, 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 the Slovakian result is, is a, a step um, a, a wave in the opposite direction from what has happened in Poland. I don't think it should be overstated. And the, the, the basis of the European Union, particularly it, as regards Eastern Europe, is accepting existing frontiers, that frontiers aren't changed. They melt away through the process of European integration. And that is an absolutely fundamental principle upon which the whole peace order of Europe rests. And Orban's uh, problem for Europe has been the reluctance of the culture that he represents in 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 in, in Hungary, not accepting that basic principle. Principles that he doesn't doesn't particularly accept. Uh, I actually had a a run in with one of his right hand men about five years ago. I'll, I'll tell you the story off air, but it's in a previous episode. If I, if I'm pretty sure it's the last episode. But I heard his guys say anti-Semitic. Islamophobic comments, like really, really direct comments to me. And you're sort of going, you're so high up and next to him, you must be, and you said, and the person who said it said it so directly and nonchalantly. I'm like, that's a clear indicator of a of the type of thinking that they have. It almost I wasn't aware of the uh, the border changes that he was looking for. I mean, it almost sounds like he wants to go back to 1913, the old empire and merging it all together, or some sort of twisted version of a Yugoslavia. But Hungry in charge. I mean, if that's what he's intending to do, yeah, I'm quite glad. I, I think my thought is that it's more a question of stoking resentment mm. than a, an attempt to um, to uh, bring any fundamental or physical changes about. And that that stoking of resentment, of course, is is very much at the heart of of populism and particularly right wing populism. That there are some people out there who have deprived us or are depriving us of what we're entitled to. It's almost better for that sort of populist for the resentment to continue rather than for it to be resolved by, say, changing borders. For that resentment to to be encouraged, and and it's it's in Slovakia, it's in Transylvania, it's in um, uh, with the, board, the borders also with with Austria to a degree. Um, Hungary is uh, still far too much of the Hungarian political culture is still under this. Trianon, the Treaty of Trianon, which dismembered Hungary at the end of the First World War, that still looms very large in in Hungarian, in right wing Hungarian thinking, and 
that is directly opposed to the fundamental principles of the of the European Union. That's the problem. The difficulty. Do you think his elections were rigged because he got such an overwhelming majority in the in the last elections? Is there was there any indication that there was some sort of rigging going on? Because by the way, it does remind me of Mussolini because Mussolini had uh, Fiume, the town on the east, which is I believe now in Croatia. Mussolini for years banged on about getting that city back along with uh, his right hand man. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm like, um, this is a bit of history repeating. The the unfortunate thing is empires just don't work in an EU, which is, I mean, in, in my opinion, empires are the one of the primary causes of World War One and Two. It never gets resolved, and all the all the dictators and leaders were arguing about having an empire of some sort. Uh, the the source of Orban's power in Hungary, as I understand it, is that his capacity to have dominant influence in the economy and in the media. And this is very much part of the fact that he has a, a, a very significant influence over the banking system, which is um, why reforms that would mean the integration of, of Hungarian banking into, or if they wish to, to avail themselves of the, the uh, single instruments for uh, regulating and guaranteeing deposits for, for banks across the European Union, which is a long standing process, which is underway, that will ultimately um, undermine their position because the, the, they would have to comply to that, and that would remove the the extreme political influence that, that now exists. And that's, I think, the sort. Of, it's not so much a, a question of of um, packing ballot boxes or anything. It's a it's a pervasive, uh, a, a very high ex- form of, of political influence over key areas of the economy that gives him his power. Poland, it was clearly more political. The the the, the... The, the mass media, the referendum that was held at the same time as the general election, all, all these were attempts to to rig the election in, in favour uh, of the governing party, but happily they failed. And I, let's hope that that's a, a precursor or an augury for what's going to happen in Hungary at some point. It shows it can be done because the t- dice in many ways were stacked against Tusk and his party, and yet he, he and his voters, um, particularly young voters, uh, managed to overcome these difficulties. Can, can I ask both of you um, about immigration? So it, it was a lightning rod for for Brexit. Do you see it becoming an issue, or well, continuing to be an issue in the in the rest of the European, well, in in the European Union, <laughs> not the rest of the European Union, but in in the European Union? Because we've seen it while in Italy before Meloni took over. There was a concern that she would be she would want uh, to take Italy out of the European Union. Now I don't I didn't believe that was really the case, but the media was concerned about that. But um, instead, she wants a stronger position in Europe. But the issue of immigration, there's a real concern that it could fracture the European Union. Do you think that's also a possibility? Maybe? It depends what you mean by immigration, of mm. course. Uh, in Brexit. Um, when some people and quite a lot of people who voted leave talked about immigration what they talked what they were referring to was the free movement of eu citizens that's not what on the whole or, or at all uh, is at issue in in germany or or, or france or, or spain or or Italy. it's a question of, of people coming from outside the european union um and it is as you rightly say, uh, an issue of, of great sensitivity. It was something that the Polish referendum, which was supposed to slant the uh, general election in the in the, in the PIS um, 
sense, um, was talking about, was talking about um, uh, allocations, uh, forcible, forcible allocations, supposedly by the European Commission, uh, of migrants from outside the European Union. I, I, I do think, actually, that the European Union has to um, come to uh, uh, an integrated European approach to these things because because there there are negotiations going on um, with third countries um, which are uh, intended to encourage or discourage migration from those countries to the European Union. Now, if civil disorder or civil war or persecution um, means that there is going to be a, a substantial displacement of population from the Middle East in particular, then I think it, it's a, an appropriate and right thing for the European Union to try and resolve that question um, as a whole, to have proper external frontiers and Frontex, as we all know, is a, is a, a developing body of the European Union. Um, but if you're going to have um, uh, strong borders to the outside, I, I think you've also got to have some coherent policy within the European Union where everybody takes a, a share of the responsibility. It's not just Italy or Germany or Spain. I got the impression, though, a couple of weeks back that some deal had been agreed with Italy to, yeah. to move that forward and to share the responsibility. It's taken this long for the governments of Europe to be able to react to this. And of course, it almost took the fact that Maloney came into power. Again, the Mussolini connection continues. Who Who's had to step in? It seems that she stepping into that power base has galvanized the EU to go, right, we do need to do something about this. Would that, would that be a fair assessment? Of that that may, may be right. But, but I think it's important that the European Union shouldn't, in any circumstances, abandon its humanitarian values mm. because john has rightly talked about the mechanism whereby the european union um guarantees pretty well peace in, in europe uh, but that's that's also based on a a perception of, of the value of human beings human life and, and their their happiness and prosperity which is a hum humane and humanitarian one which is very firmly rooted in european culture um, and while it's absolutely right that you should have um, uh, Frontex arrangements which reflect the right of a, uh, of a political organization to protect its borders, nevertheless, um, that's got to be operated in a, a generous and humane way. And when I talk about the burden being sho shouldered equally or equitably between European countries, um, uh, I, I don't mean that they should have a race to the bottom. I, I think yeah. there, there should it's be a... The top. a Exactly, a, a generosity, um, particularly as far as um, as refugees are concerned. Just, of course, it's not relevant to the EU, but in the United Kingdom, most of the people who come in small, small boats are found to be refugees when their cases are eventually um, examined. So the idea that, that everybody who's trying to come to Italy or Poland or, or wherever it is, um, is an economic migrant is, is just unsustainable. And one of the problems is that this issue is, is confused with um, the structural need for labor in the yes. European economy because of the European demographic uh, uh, declining birth rates. And it's it's further confused with the issues of cultural integration and assimilation of non-European populations who come into Europe, um, who've been in, in many cases there for a, a very long time. Communities from former imperial possessions of various European countries. And 
that has the it's important to distinguish these these different elements that the difference between eastern and western europe i mean is that western europe has france belgium holland spain all countries with imperial histories um and whereas eastern europe were the victims of imperialism essentially and didn't have any colonies and so that's a very significant distinction um which has made this this question more more sensitive politically a, a sort of gulf of understanding if you like or or sensitivity but the economic issue is is absolutely um critical that 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 the european economy requires labor at the moment and the question is where it comes from and what criteria criteria you use and those criteria need to be at a european level probably in order to be efficient but the biggest confusion i think particularly relevant for the british debate is the uh, a notion that freedom of movement was an immigration policy um, freedom of movement inside the eu is not an immigration policy it is a movement policy within the eu and um if you take the example of, of, of the uk average period of time in which eu citizens came to britain and stayed was actually less than five years for four and a half years uh because what happened was people came from poland or wherever and then they uh, they worked for a while and then they went home and then more people from poland came it was a cycle it was a cyclical thing but the point is that it was not people coming for permanent settlement the the problem which is emerging in the uk now is that long-term settlement the, the the immigration that has come post brexit largely because the europeans have gone home are now coming from countries who seek permanent settlement coming from the indian subcontinent for example and that creates a whole different set of issues about sustainability because ultimately people who come um on one off basis to settle over time they will become a burden on on resources for health and everything else when they come to retirement so that you it it doesn't have the same positive economic effect or lasting economic effect that a system of freedom of movement has and so uh, this confusion between believing that freedom of movement under the eu was an immigration policy that that goes very near to the heart of of the confusion that led to brexit in my view i'm always I would, i would argue with the um the point i think i've looked at some statistics recently which was showing i to be fair i think the statistics have come out you know or part of the statistics have come out from the united states but there were some interesting things in relation to contributions there was definitely statistics for the uk contributions for migrants from any part of the world generally disproportionately actually were advantageous and higher than locals which i found to be quite interesting and i wondered i just wondered if it was that level of moving across and toughening out and going across multiple countries to be able to 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 get to the uk that gives them this ex or they have within them this robustness to be able to go right i'm going to put my nose down and work as hard as possible it's simply a, a factor of the age profile is that people who uh, immigrants tend to, are in the productive age brackets um and under freedom of movement people who were young came to britain uh, worked and then when they acquired some money they went went home and more young people came and so you got this, you had a, a, the same age profile the problem of people coming 
who seek permanent settlement, and that tends to be the case of people coming from outside the EU, um, is that ultimately they will grow old and they will become a burden. Well, I think that's a rather harsh way of putting it. They're not a burden. Yeah, I'm trying to say. They have requirements. It's a purely economic (laughs) view of the world. No, we're not happening. They they have a a profile that is more like that of British citizens. People who are born in this country pay taxes and then as they grow older claim benefits. But But the European problem is a demographic problem. The European age profile is is, is getting older. And if you solve that by people seeking permanent settlement, then ultimately you're not solving it. You're merely postponing it. Whereas if you're increasing the European birth rate and if you're having people coming from younger populations, I mean, the Ukrainian demographic profile, um, despite the fact they're in a war and suffering appalling casualties, is much younger, actually, than the European average. Um, And and so, and the people who are coming, who... who, um, the more the EU has expanded, actually, the better its age profile has become uh, since the, compared because Western Europe is has a has a, a less advantageous age profile than, than Eastern Europe. fundamentally. Can, can well, I just there, say something? I just sorry. want to say something. I, I wish Brendan and John had been on the Remain campaign because, you know, you're great at speaking and explaining these things, because, you know, when we look back at what what the situation was before Brexit, you know, many people voted, as you said, uh, they believed freedom of movement was an immigration issue when in reality it's not. But also, as you said there about, I was just thinking about Italy, you know, Italy has an, a, probably the oldest population in Europe yeah. and Absolutely. it desperately needs immigrants. But what you have is you have a, a right wing government, far right government, who's uh, pushing the immigration issue all the time. We need to you know, convince more Italians to have children. But if you actually ask Italians, and I, you can apply this probably to Britain as well, especially London, it's bloody expensive having, you know, for, like growing a fa- having a family, buying a house, um, mm. having children, putting them through school. It's really expensive. Like people can't even afford you know, to, to pay their bills, to pay their rent. Um, you need to tackle those issues. But Absolutely. You, you need to, you need to rely on immigration because people, as you said, will come in. They'll spend a, a number of years and then they'll they'll return. And you know the burden will be on the the home country, not on the United Kingdom or wherever they're going in the original plan. But then we've got that bigger picture of if we've got if the European Union has already recognised it's got a lower birth rate and it needs people, and it's putting out uh, the blue passport to get people to move here, such as the UK. That's being advertised over social media. Come to the EU, come and work here, come and live here. We've got everything, great work. And they're listing off the, the jobs that are available or they're keen to get in. We're in a competition with the EU over our youth. We've got, I think it was 1.3 million Australians in the last 10 years, was it, that left, moved to Australia? Did anyone else hear that statistic? I think it was a police officer being interviewed. The first wave of police recruits have just arrived down under, but uh, they're not the only ones to go there. Over 1.2 million Brits who were born in the UK have now moved to Australia, and that makes it the country's biggest migrant population. The reasons we came to Australia were just the lifestyle, you know, living in this fantastic country in this fantastic climate. I mean, what more could you want? There's just so much on our doorstep. 
I've got three young children and a fantastic husband and we're really outdoorsy. We love the outdoors, anything physical. And Australia has it in abundance. Um, and it was a no-brainer for us to come when we got this fantastic opportunity to just jump at the chance. Take your hands off our police officers and our public sector. We need them. I know of, I know of nurses and doctors leaving well and this is maybe these not are qualified people on the whole yeah. aren't they these are qualified people right? yes yeah. yeah that are leaving yeah which then brings on other other problems i mean again it's that that bring up the word burden you know if we're if our high earners and highly qualified people are going we've had enough and we're going to europe or we're going to australia or we're going to new zealand or the states and they're all saying we've got a lower birth rate than what we need come over i, I see it as a long-term problem but there is there is an area of the world that we need to segue into that does have a very youthful population, and that's the Gaza Strip. Forty percent of the population there is below the age of sixteen, apparently, or at least according to I think both the UN and Amnesty. So we were going to segue this into the Gaza Strip and Israel and the conflict that's been going on over there, which is just a complete mess from top to finish. But Biden's visit does that bring us any level of hope of some sort of resolution? Or is it just some sort of scheme to get him elected into into power? Is that is, is that the well, pessimist in me? Go on, Brendan. I don't think it's that unreasonable that democratic politicians should be aware of the implications of what they're doing for their electability, for or for the pleasing the electorate. I, I don't think that's unfair. It's when there's nothing else to their political persona other than getting re-elected that um, it becomes a problem. Uh, I, I think Biden is carrying out what his genuine uh, emotional convictions are, um, that he's a, a pretty robust and long-term supporter of Israel. He's been a, a appalled by um, what happened at the beginning of, of this uh, uh, incursion, uh, substantial incursion by, by Hamas. Um, but it seems that he's beginning to, to have doubts privately rather than publicly uh, about the proportionality of what the Israelis are going to do in response. Um, and I think that's a, a rather defensible and, and decent reaction from a human point of view. Whether it's going to make any difference, given that he wants to continue with the public support of Israel and with the, the supplying of arms to Israel, um, I, I rather doubt. I, I think the conclusion you might draw from this um, uh, this visit is that American influence in the area is, is, is quite limited. Uh, the, the snub that was visited upon them by the Arab leaders, um, in spite of the fact that they need American financial support and to some extent military support, was, was very, very striking. I, I think they can um, they can offer up their goodwill and their good offices, but but I suspect that for some time um, the contestants are going to fight it out among themselves, and the Americans will will only have a, a, a peripheral role. What do you think, John? Well, I was struck by the contrast between Olaf Scholz's visit to Israel and, of course, um, von der Leyen also, um, and that of. Biden and 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 Sunak, um, because the difference in in atmosphere, the, the lack of coverage, relatively speaking, was obviously very striking too. But the 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 fact that what Schultz was expressing was the deep shadow of the Holocaust that hangs over Europe, and the sense that European 
civilization as a whole has this stain upon it. Uh, and that is hugely important in the whole project of European integration, overcoming that, all of the associations that that had, the, the horrors of dictatorship and racism and the, the traumas of fir the first half of the 20th century in Europe. Is, that is the, the, the real emotional fount of the European unification project and is very, very significant. Whereas for President Biden, the relationship with Israel is, is, is of a different nature. The, the American view of this, the American uh, sensitivity towards it is of a different order. It's a, a lesser order in my view. Um, and that I think is quite important because it is, it's impossible to understand uh, what drives European unification without all that history. And it's also why, in my view, there is a limit to the extent to which uh, extremism, uh, political extremism in, in Europe is able to succeed. I think there is still a ceiling, for example, for Le Pen in France, um, because there is this deep folk memory that the last time people who were in charge, um, who shared some of the fundamental beliefs that, that her groups have. Uh, they were taking children off to be gassed, basically. And that, that this horror is what makes the European project real. And that's what, for me, that that's what that goes beyond the current crisis, obviously, which is... Um, which we can discuss separately. But I, for me, the, the, it was the... the Diff the deep difference between Schultz's visit and Biden's visit, which is that there are two totally different perceptions of essentially the same proposition that the state of Israel needs to be defended. But um, for for Europeans, the existence of the state of Israel has a, a, a deeper significance, it seems to me, than it does for but the, but that's particularly, but that's particularly true of Germany for, for mm. yeah, of course. Yes. Uh, I I I I don't dispute what you say, but but in in the French perception of the European Union, it's it's at least as much the idea that um, that that Europe as a civilization shouldn't destroy itself as it has did in the came very near to doing yes, in the first and second um, uh, uh, world wars, and and of course the Holocaust is a is a a prime example of that. But I, I think it it goes a, a little broader. That than just the, the the Holocaust, and I mean I, I think it, it's possible to 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 understate the the horror with which uh, um, Americans, perhaps particularly on the East Coast where they're written nearer Europe, um, regard the um, the Holocaust as as being a defining event of of Western barbarity. I guess it was interesting as well to see what happened within the UN with the aid being vetoed by the US and then the UK and Russia abstaining on the aid being sent through. Was it through Egypt to... Yes, through Egypt. Yeah, yeah. through Egypt. And there was a veto on the level of aid that was going to be given into, into Gaza. It was just interesting to see that you would have thought, difficult on international politics, you would have hoped that aid would have been allowed through and not vetoed. But you know, there's other <laughs> there are other issues at play here that you know I think a lot of European groups aren't particularly aware of. Um, I think it's 31 states in the US. Uh, the governments of those states were handing out contracts, uh, but with the stipulation that you weren't allowed to have an embargo on Israel, which is quite shocking to have 31 states 
having that sort of perspective and then influencing the public like that. I mean, the, the flip side of that would have been something along the lines of imagine if China, imagine if 31 states in the United States had said you aren't allowed to say anything negative about China or you aren't allowed to say anything negative about India or you're not allowed to say anything about the EU that's negative um, or advocate an embargo on any of those states. You would go from a perspective of an American, that's quite serious in terms of influence that's been taking place. This got shut down, by the way. It, it got shut down about, I think, four years ago. Georgia eventually lost the court case to a journalist called Abby Martin, um, who took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And they ruled that this was a freedom of speech infringement. And it was interesting to see that level of influence taking place within states. But then that the, the bigger picture to that for me is the fact that you had that veto still come in in the UN, and yet it was for aid. Talking about Georgia court cases, um, Sidney Powell, um, one of Trump's lawyers, has decided to plead guilty just the day before her, her, her trial started, which was tomorrow, which, in my view, makes it less likely that Trump will be able to be elected, because I think she's got a lot of beans to spill. Uh, do, do we think that, that in this context, that's an important development. Um, have Hamas, in particular, um, uh, overestimated the, the fragility of the American political system, and that led them to the the incursion which um, which they undertook. So, so one of the one of the beliefs is that the reason Hamas started this was there was a growing fear of uh, a peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and. A normal, not a peace deal, but a normalization of relations. So this is a real concern for Hamas. But and of course, Hamas is backed by Iran, and Iran and Saudi Arabia are at loggerheads over a whole over the region. So I think there is um, there are a number of reasons. Perhaps they they did start this, but um, I I don't know whether they were they were like how how much support they thought the U.S. would provide to Israel. But uh, as it's always been an ally, yes, they, 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 will suppress, they will supply whatever support Israel require. But I think the, the fact that um, Biden has sent two aircraft carriers, I believe, to the, to the region was to show, was to send a message to Iran and its allies in the, in the region not to get involved. But my, but I wanted to ask another question related to this. What is the end game? Because Israel are planning at the time of recording this, we don't know, but it could have already happened by the time we this this video is shown to people. But um, Israel is planning an, a ground invasion of Gaza, and what is the end game there? Is it to put someone in charge to run run the place? Um, is is there a risk that Hamas or something like Hamas could emerge from that? Um, or is there a possibility that Egypt could be put in charge or could work with Israel to to run uh, Gaza after Hamas has been removed? Well, that's a that's a huge question. <laughs> and there's so many little difficulties everywhere. I mean, what? there are a number of reports coming out suggesting that it is likely that, and again, you have to take everything that is coming out with a pinch of salt. But there are reports coming out suggesting that it's going to be a complete takeover of the area. And you've got certain commentators encouraging that. Go in and take it over. Just just take it. Um, it's interesting as well because you were, you were bringing up the, the, the issues with Saudi Arabia and Iran. There was also an issue with uh, Netanyahu, who in the UN, only two weeks before this all kicked off, held up a map of Israel. He was talking about him wanting to have an economic corridor from Asia to Europe. 
And on that map in the UN that he held up, it showed Israel and there was no Palestine. There was nothing on that map. There was just Israel. A tiny country, isolated, surrounded by a hostile Arab world. Which I assume, and from what some people have said on TV, again, take it with a pinch of salt, have claimed that was part of the thing that sort of pushed them over the edge. Because they were looking at it and going, right, well, he's clearly stating what his position is. I mean, the worst thing about it was on this map, which... I checked because I was like, well, what, does it have like smaller states on it? You know, it's just a general map and he's just made a mistake. And you could see like Qatar was on there, clearly labeled. So you're going, right, he's deliberately removed them off that map. And either that makes him extremely stupid or extremely dangerous. I don't know which, but I don't know why you go up onto the UN and hold up a map like that. The worst bit was after he held up that map and explained this economic corridor he wanted to do, he also clearly <laughs> pointed out that it was really important to tell the truth at all times. I believe that a real path towards a genuine peace with our Palestinian neighbors can finally be achieved. But there's a caveat. It has to be said here, forcefully. Peace can only be achieved if it is based on truth. It cannot be based on lies. What are you doing? <laughs> well, you, you, you have a strong suspicion that somebody is a liar when they lecture you on how important it is <laughs> to tell the truth all the time. At least that, that's my reaction. But we've been talking about the, the divisions within the United States. Mustn't forget that there are very substantial divisions within Israel as well. And so mm. when you ask about the end game, um, well, different people will have different end games. And it might well be that within the ruling coalition or government up to now, there there is a view that that Gaza will essentially be annexed and become part of 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 of, of the Israeli state. Whether that will be a sustainable position for for Israeli society as a whole to um, undertake and and guarantee in coming years is is, a, is another issue. That that that. that it seems to me, talking to, to Jewish and Israeli friends, that there are many of them who are, who are profoundly conflicted emotionally at the moment, because um, many, many Israelis um, think that um, uh, the way the government, their government in recent years, has approached the question of Gaza has been provocative, that you hear again and again. You didn't need to have all these intelligence assets to tell you that there was going to be a, a, an explosion coming from Gaza, given the way the Israeli government has behaved towards them. Um, uh, and so that uh, is the background against which people now are in complete shock and horror at, at the terrifying things that were done um, a couple of weeks ago. But I suspect that when it settles down, um, there'll be a rather more sober view in a lot of quarters in Israel uh, about the need for long-term reconciliation rather than simply taking over uh, another another parcel of land which will produce a million more refugees and a million more grave grievances. Can, can I ask you do, you, do you believe that the, the refugees who headed south will be allowed back in? in Personally, in, no. No, it's, it's generally not the case. Is, does that depend on whether or not Gaza is still... Gaza or has Gaza's then been annexed? Do you mean, Max? Well, well, I think in any circumstance, when you say allowed back in, it may be that there, there isn't a formal interdiction on their doing it, but but I can't see that that it will be possible, practically possible, for most of them to go back anyway. Because I, there's so little left. I heard that part of the reason why there was a 
problem with the convoy was a conflict between, or at least this again, what I read, there was a conflict between the Egyptian and the Israeli government on, it's sort of an exchange to allow that in, but then to also for Egypt to take refugees. And what surprised me the most out of this, and I didn't know, is that in uh, the mountainous areas of Sinai, the, um, or the Sinai region, is um, there, there were uh, groups that were fighting against uh, Egypt and that they were in a, um, they're in some sort of war, which was part of the reason why they weren't too keen on having any refugees. But Israel was like, well, if you want to bring those trucks in, you've got to take some of this. And you're sort of starting to see that there are so many little nuanced issues between different countries within the region. It's difficult to see how, how any resolution can be resolved. And I agree. I, I don't know. There aren't many situations in history where you bomb someone so devastatingly that they capitulate. Generally, I've only known of one country that's ever done that in, in the history of warfare, and that was Holland in World War II. Everyone else, when you bomb them, they just get more and more angry and more resolute. You'd I mean, maybe, oh, I guess Japan, but I don't think it's... I was going to say, I was going to say Japan, didn't Japan, but But that was only because of two nuclear weapons, which I don't see Israel using. Mm. But prior to that, I mean, the incendiary bombs that the Americans used still didn't stop the Japanese. They were absolutely resolute. It was only until the two nuclear bombs were dropped that they actually finally capitulated. So I'm, I'm sort of going, you, you hope for the, there to be some sort of resolution, but it seems that if everyone's just going to be continually going tit for tat and back and forth, and this has been going on for decades and no resolution's been had, it's pretty difficult to see how that's going to come to a solution. But saying that, you know, and we can argue over the comparability of it. Northern Ireland, you know, I'm sure there are points in history where people thought that Northern Ireland would never be resolved. And yet, you know, until Brexit, it looked quite stable. Do you think that Europe has got a, a role to play in, um, in in acting, perhaps as an example to the Middle East? It would be a, a nice thing to think. What do you the, think? The, the European Union continues to send aid to, and has always been sending aid to uh, to the region. So I, I think it can. I think it can be a good example um, about you know you had arch enemies coming together and making peace, but. Uh, Many people are talking about, of course, the the two state solution, but I, I don't see that actually working. I, I hate to be so pessimistic, but unless it's you know you're always going to have um, conflicts over borders. So wherever the border will be set in a two two state solution, there there'll always be people who will disagree. Um, I, I think maybe a, a one state secular country in the future would be would be a better approach. But, I, I'm, but I'm not the an expert. The problem with that is that what is it to be a Jewish state? And is that yes. fundamentally a secular notion? And, and is it possible to have a Jewish state that contains a large number of non-Jews and be a democracy? I mean, these are the issues that frame uh, the problems for the future of Israel. And does Israel so have that to us? Sorry, John. Israel is not a state like any other because it has this special status of protection for a particular religious tradition that has an enormous history in Western civilization, and also the crime that of anti-Semitism culminating in the Holocaust has, is the central crime of, of European culture. Uh, and that, that's what makes this thing... Israel is not like anywhere else. And that's why I think this... Um, the, the the problem is so intractable. Whereas um, the, the the 
the conflict on the Arab side is what does it mean to have an Arab identity? Um, and the pan-Arab nationalism has faded as a force and has been replaced um, by a much older version of, of Islamic solidarity, which is... Uh, uh, so um, the, the the processes of what bind people together and what justify the existence of particular state structures are different. Um, and I'm not sure Israel really is capable of being a secular state like any other, because that is against its the logic of its fundamental creation. Well, but equally, I'm not sure that um, the, the, the Arab world is uh, better served by seeking the solidarity of Islamic peoples. And the, 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 there isn't that solidarity. One of the, the things that may be holding back uh, a, a, a second front in Lebanon is, the, of course, that Hezbollah is a Shiite organization, whereas um, um, Hamas is a, is a Sunni organization. Um, so you, you have, you have the, the question is, what, what is the, the binding factor in on the Arab side or on the Muslim side? Is it is it is it Muslim or is it Arab? And on the Israeli side, is is it uh, trying to be a secular state like any other, or is it actually anchored to its uh, religious logic, its cultural and religious logic? Uh, well, well, they may be different. The cultural and religious logic are not necessarily identical, um, mm. because as you know, within Israel, there's a lot of controversy about how far. Um, Indeed, yeah. Religion yeah. should be anchored in the identity of the state. And, and one of the ironies is that the most religious communities, Jewish communities in Israel, don't actually recognize the Israeli state. I, I, I know. And they're not prepared to serve it militarily, I think. So it's yeah. a, a very but, strange situation. But that's, that's the extreme of the horseshoe, as it were. Yeah. Um, but, but there are serious questions about how far um, uh, the, Israel is uh, living up to its original values if it becomes um, a theocratic state. That, that, that is an argument that goes on from the other side as well. It doesn't seem like there's a particular solution until at least the fighting stops. And yes. after, after what we've seen, I don't see that ending for, well, you never know, there might, you could, you could see ground forces potentially, like, you know, there's rumors kicking around, ground forces gonna go in and just take the entire area and just, annex it and then it's completely under Israeli control and maybe that will calm things down maybe it won't maybe there'll be terror cells within that and there'll be groups on the border trying to get in the entire time and continue to cause chaos it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is I guess it comes back onto the point of what we were saying is Biden what what is the purpose of Biden's visit is he going to actually calm things down or is he just there to to show moral support well I think it was both I I, I think he he does have um a slightly um, more nuanced view than some of his critics allow, that he, he does want to support Israel and he as shocked as anybody by what's happened. Um, but I, I think he, he he does, he is aware as somebody who who has the, the germ, more than the germ, I would say, of statesmanship in him, uh, that, that there is a danger of overreaction by, by the Israeli state, understandably so, uh, and he wants to act as some sort of break on it. So as it's Halloween, I'm going to throw an absolutely awful, awful situation at all of you. Donald Trump gets back in. Does that solve the situation? <laughs> does that does that make any difference to the situation? Biden loses. Donald Trump comes in. It's Halloween, I don't know, 21, <laughs> the movie. 
What is the... Does that make any difference in this situation? Well, can, I, can I just add, wasn't Donald Trump's son-in-law supposed to resolve the... <laughs> The, the what did they uh, half century uh, problem between the Israelis and the Palestinians? He was Could hired we... to do that job, wasn't he? So, would the Abraham Accords be grounds to say that they had the beginning of a process to calm things down? Because that was quite, and I hate to say it, that was quite an interesting step, maybe to neutrality, maybe a step forward, because you had different states from the Middle East and are considered to be Muslim majority supporting the Abraham Accords for some sort of setting up of embassies, economic ties. I mean, isn't doesn't that say that Donald Trump could do something here if he came in? Am I living in some sort of weird Halloween fantasy world? Where... I, I think it's, it is fair to say that uh, in foreign policy, uh, the, the record of Donald Trump wasn't nearly as appalling as it was in domestic, not even necessarily policy, but domestic political culture, he he um, degraded and uh, reduced the the political culture of the United Kingdom of the United States in in a, almost a unique way. But as far as foreign policy was concerned, you, you couldn't look at it and, and say uh, it was an unmitigated disaster. Um, I think if he were to be re-elected now. It would be a less benevolent outcome. I, I think NATO would be in real danger if he were re-elected now. But it might be that it wouldn't make as much of a difference to the the, the, um, the Middle East as um, as it would to NATO. What do you think, John? Well, I I think that the the uh, thing we, we haven't discussed really is Iran in all of this, mm. um, which has clearly been a, a very significant player in Lebanon and perhaps also. Um, in relation to Hamas, and th there were hopes that there was some rise in secularism in, in Iran. Uh, you had a whole lot of protests um, not so long ago um, against the the religious leadership there, and that has faded somewhat. But it must still be a potential, it seems to me, because of the enormous economic strains that. Um, that, that Iran faces, partly because of the sanctions and partly because of the extreme incompetence of the um, economic management of the mullahs. Um, and at some point, it, it does seem to me there is a chance of, of Iran going through a, a further revolution in a more positive and secular direction. And maybe we should be focusing on what might encourage that, because uh, that they have been the the, the really disruptive factor um, in in framing um, the, the the Middle East crisis, and it, there is also the side element here of the rivalry, the very ancient rivalry between Turkey and and Iran um, under the Ottomans and the uh, Safavids. It's a very old story, um, and 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 again, the advent of Erdogan and Erdogan's ambitions in. Uh, and fears over Kurdistan and the rest. These are these are the factors that actually, in some respects, are the most important immediate um, influences on on the on the situation on the crisis in in, in the Holy Land. Whereas the, the the what had previously been the dominating feature, which is oil energy, that is probably fading over time. And so in a sense, I mean, one has to take a long perspective in discussing the Middle East, because these problems have been intractable for so long. But 
I think that attention should be shifting more towards what is going on in Iran and what might happen in Iran. Um, and also the longer term impact of the end of the role of oil in the world economy. Those are the, that is likely to be where peace will come. Because what has rendered all these disputes, including the, all the emotion and, 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 and religious and commitment uh, vested in the state of Israel, what, what has rendered all this particularly toxic at a global level is the, is the energy issue, is the geopolitics of it lying behind. Uh, and, and, and maybe those factors will, in due course, fade. And that's what, that is where you'll get a resolution. Do we, do we dare blame the CIA and Winston Churchill for taking out a democratically elected Iranian government that wanted to nationalise oil? Or do we, do we bypass that and say it was too far in the past to be relevant to what's going on today well, no, I mean, it's obviously it's all part of the the, the history um but no i mean i think the, the if a world which is no longer dependent on on hydrocarbons is one where the middle east looms much less um, in our affairs and in iran that re rediscovers its its ancient identity as a as a state that is not committed to particular form of religious fanaticism. I mean, Iran has a very ancient history, um, would also be a, a very different proposition. Can, can I, uh, can we bring things back can, to... Can I say to one thing about yes. blaming people? I, I think that blaming people for a thing that things that happened a lot long ago is, is pointless, but it's not pointless to remember what the causality was. Uh, mm. And if you are trying to construct a narrative of the United Kingdom as having been a, a uniquely benevolent power within world affairs over the past 100 or 200 years, um, then I think it's fair enough to point to things like um, Mossadegh and um, the, the overthrow of a, of a, a fairly democratic yeah. <laughs> regime. Um, but uh, blame, I think, is, uh, is wasted energy. And it, 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 it's when you get away from blame that there's a chance of a resolution. If you're spending your time blaming people, then that's an enormous. Yeah. You, you don't, yeah, you, you don't make you don't make any uh, progress. Um, can I can I just bring it back to Britain for a moment? Because while we're recording this, the uh, the by elections are taking place, so we don't have the results yet. But w what do you see in a Keir Starmer government? Can I can I put that out to everyone? Maybe uh, Alex, we'll start with you it, first. What, what it, do you it, see? In comparison to the Conservatives, for example, at current at current levels, I can't say. I um I trust them because essentially they're saying we have to lie in order to win the vote. That's my interpretation. I know a lot of people are not happy with me saying that. But at the same time, it then makes me go, I don't know what they are going to do. Are they going to be conservative light? Are they going to go full hog and try and fix Brexit? Which I you know, I only see two options. You go free trade, well, you know, that's smashing small businesses. That's not helping the economy. I, I don't see how the free trade works. <laughs> Interestingly, I discovered that Mussolini's lot weren't happy with free trade either for almost the exact same reasons, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Actually, um, can, can, can I... Small businesses, but the, hmm. uh, I, I think there's a chance that they are going to secretly start, uh, somewhat secretly start moving towards a, a unified EU and just be a little more tolerant and a little less cultural, which I personally think is... Start to grate on everyone because everyone's sick of it. 
but that's that's my interpretation. Um, could, could I ask it both John and Brendan, both of you, you know, former members of the Conservative Party, um, do you, like, and the Conservative Party of the nineteen nineties, a, a very different, uh, a, a very different beast to the Conservative Party today. Do, do you see do you see a Starmer government emulating something like the Conservatives of the of the eighties or the nineties, or is that a I think it would be a conservative government of the 50s, um, <laughs> okay. uh, because you, you, you talked about uh, uh, the Conservative Party of 1990s being different to the Conservative Party today. Absolutely right. But the point was that the Conservative Party of the 1990s was in continuity with what had happened before in the party. What's unusual about it is that it's no longer a conservative party. It's a revolutionary party. And that is something that's um, happened for the first time in conservative history. I mean, I, 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 I think that, that Starmer will attempt to have a centre-left government. It will be a bit, a bit more redistributive, a bit more uh, concerned with improving public health and public services than 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 a, a centre-right Conservative Party would have been. But I think that the Brexit will be the, the great um, elephant that, that uh, they'll try to ignore at the beginning. Um, if we've been talking more generally about Brexit, then I would have said that, that, that Brexit is going badly and it's getting worse, but nobody's talking about it because both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have got an incentive not to talk about it. The Conservatives, because they know it's indefensible. The Labour Party, because they've made an electoral calculation, which I don't necessarily share, but it is their 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 conclusion. Uh, and I think that, that things may well radically change after the next general election. Uh, I think the, the the it will be extremely difficult for this government, for a Starmer government, um, to deliver the economic growth that they claim they're going to. Uh, and I think that uh, the pressures of being outside the single market and the customs union will become more manifest. And I can well believe that by the end of the four or five years of um, uh, of a first Labour government, um, they will be looking how get themselves off the hook on which they've impaled themselves of um, making Brexit work, which is complete nonsense. I suspect that in the last two years of that government, um, there will be active moves, not just to talk nicely about Europe, but to become uh, perhaps members of the single market, if that's possible. And then it wouldn't surprise me at all if in, in, 19, in 2028 or 29, um, uh, Brexit is a, a major issue in the in in the general election i think that will be a difference between 25 and, and 29 it's no guarantee by the way that a labor government will be re-elected i think those people who think that that's a done deal are, are hopelessly premature if the labor party as they may mess up uh, politically and economically their first term in government um a revivified um uh, radicalized conservative party could 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 even beat them. It, it might be even be under Suella Braverman having integrated herself culturally into the United Kingdom by taking on the worst characteristics of the British. That's very often a way in which people culturally integrate themselves. They mimic the worst aspects of the host culture. Halloween twenty nine. <laughs> John, John, what's your take on that? Well, I, I agree with 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 pretty well all of that. Um, I would only say I think that the chances of the government being battered by uh, a number of crises, um, which will make it impossible to have a coherent uh, policy, um, is very high. Um, I think on the economic front, um, things are going to get extremely difficult. Um, 
in a context in which I think the wider world economy will be in a very difficult position. Um, I think that you're going to get a further collapse of, of global free trade. You're going to get more protectionism. You're going to get um, greater strains over debt, greater challenges regarding climate change and the rest. I and mean, this is going to be an extremely hostile environment in which uh, a number of crises, um, particularly, I think, the capacity to um, sustain any form of growth um, cut off from the European economy and also cut off from uh, a world that is protectionist. I mean, the Americans will be more protectionist too. Um, so will the Chinese, uh, so will the Indian. And couple, coupled with that is the chances of constitutional crises, whether that be in relation to Northern Ireland or Scotland coming onto the agenda in a way that Will be uh, will be very difficult to manage. I, I actually think that the 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 prospect facing a Labour government is that it loses control, and it's not quite clear what will come out of that. It could be um, the, the the catalyst for fully rejoining the European Union of the of the, the British finally accepting that the logic of of uh, which was accepted by continental Europeans in the aftermath of the war, that you had to have um, a, a united Europe. It was the only way of facing up to the challenges of the modern world. That that is finally adopted by the British in crises circumstances. Or it could be, before that happens, that you lurch the other way, that you lurch into a dangerous, um, potentially fascistic, English nationalist, um, uh, isolationist position. Uh, sort of Franco Spain without the sunshine. Um, that could that is also possible, um, and it wouldn't last. But it would be extremely unpleasant. I, I fear I I have a rather sort of pessimistic view of, of things. I I I think that it's going to be a very rough ride, and so trying to say, well, will the Labour government be like a sort of Tory government without the lunacy, the um, the corruption, the and all the rest. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe, but I it, I think it's more likely to be a a, a storm tossed ship. A bit what of a poison chalice. What are your thoughts, Max? Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with uh, with both of our guests. I, I think it, I, I have a feeling it's going to be a bit of a poison chalice that that uh, Stormer is going to take over, and it's going to be very difficult to um, to resolve these problems without making big sacrifices. And uh, there is a fear that he will go down the road of austerity. And this will really damage the the Labour Party. There's also a risk that if he doesn't do things correctly, um, if he doesn't handle things correctly, it could split the party, and um, you'd see the type of infighting that you're seeing with the Conservatives at the moment. But the there is a risk that if they don't resolve a lot of the internal problems and Starmer doesn't deliver, then it'd be very easy for the Conservatives to come back with a radical leader, probably somebody like Suella Braverman or Kemi Badenoch. Um, and uh, be back in power again. I think that's one of the reasons. I, I we haven't had a chance to ask ask our guests about this, but um, I think this is one of the reasons why Britain needs proportional representation to to keep a, a lid on the extreme elements. Um, you know, they can come into they can come into Parliament, but it it does have a, a watering down effect on the on the on radicalism in both on the left and on the right. I agree with that. But the trouble is that the people who will make this come about are the people who are the beneficiaries of the present system. Yes. <laughs> you um, you said last week, Max, that you wanted to be in the Conservative Party as a joke. Well, I think we've come as close as you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, 
happy Halloween, everyone. Bye. Bye -bye. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Tune in next week for another exciting story from the files of Police Squad.